Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here. So glad that you chose to join us today and so thankful that you're a part of our community. Today, we're in the final week of our Advent series, and as we've been in this season of Advent, we've been spending four weeks exploring the implications of a God who locates God's self in the womb of a young woman. And this week, we hear from one of our community members who also happens to be a PhD student at Notre Dame, Daniel Benera, who reflects on Mary's song, The Magnificat. Before we get there, though, we're going to hear some updates in the life of our community. The first is just some reminders about the schedule over the next few weeks, and we also hear an update on our Christmas offering. We get to hear from Jason and our friends over at Redeemer Central Church in Belfast, Northern Ireland, about how part of our Christmas offering can help them in their day-to-day lives. If you want to skip directly to the teaching for today, you can jump to about 13 minutes and 30 seconds to get there. All right, let's jump in with Jason and the rest of our community now. Hey, good morning. That's good enough for a cold Sunday. I'll take it. Uh, We're honored that you're here. Welcome to South Bend City Church. We're a Jesus community who this Advent season is learning to watch for the arrival of God, not just in the story of Christ, but in our world today and in our longings for the future. And so we do things like light candles and hear scriptures and uh, find other ways of practicing that hope and vigilance. And uh, wherever you've come from, Uh, Whoever you are, however you relate to all of this, or whether you don't relate to it at all, we're still honored that you are here, and we hope that you find this to be a community uh, growing in grace and peace together with one another and with God. Uh, Lots of fun things going on this Christmas season as we try to live out some of the generosity that we celebrate in God, and a couple of the ways that's happening that I want to draw your attention to, and then we'll talk about calendar for a minute. But as far as generosity, um, one way that some of us are showing up with some extra generosity in this season is with the Tribune Project, which is us preparing the printing press building of the South Bend Tribune downtown, not just to be the future home for South Bend City Church, but also to become a place for the people of South Bend to find a safe space and help as we work with community partners to use that space all week long. So that project is moving forward. It's very exciting. And uh, one of the ways that we're showing up financially is to continue to give to that project. Uh, The other way, uh, in keeping with our tradition as a community, we're we're not old enough to have many traditions, but one of them is Christmas offering. And this year, like other years, uh, we're we're giving a Christmas offering above and beyond our regular giving. And this goes to uh, three different areas. One is to resource some needs for our life together as a church. You heard about that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, One place that shows up is in the life of our city. You heard about that last week uh, with our partnership with Downtown South Bend Incorporated and with uh, Refugee Assistance. And then this week, I want to let you know a little bit more about the way that this money will show up in the world at large, going out of South Bend to another place where we can partner. Uh, That is specifically with our friends at Redeemer Central Church in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Uh, Dave uh, Armstrong is one of the team members there. Dave's been out here and been on our stage. Uh, We've been out there in Belfast with their church. And what we found uh, several years ago was a very kindred community, uh, a church where there's just uh, like a very similar sense of calling and culture and conviction that shape what's happening here at South Bend City Church and what's happening at Redeemer there in Belfast. So we've been walking together for years. Uh, Dave, who leads that team, was actually with our group in Israel-Palestine just a few weeks ago, and we traveled together and shared all those learnings. Uh, We take a lot of notes from Redeemer and all the ways that they show up, including the way that they use their space. Uh, As we get ready to renovate and then move into the Tribune building, uh, we've seen Redeemer for years now think about their space in the heart of Belfast as a place that can be a resource for common good. And what we heard recently is that they've come up against a need. It's actually the the heat in the building. Uh, It's a very, very, very old church building that they inhabit in the heart of Belfast. And with the loss of heat, uh, it jeopardizes not just their life together on Sunday mornings, but the really good work that happens all week long on behalf of displaced people uh, who are currently living in Belfast. So we want to show up for them with Christmas offering, but rather than uh, take my word for it, I thought you'd want to hear from some of the leaders at Redeemer Central. Does that sound all right? Cool. Check this out. Hi, South Bend City Church. My name is David, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer Central Church in Belfast. And I just wanted to express our deepest gratitude to you for your extraordinary kindness to us this Christmas. Um, The timing of this gift is truly remarkable. Um, It comes at a perfect time for us, and we're really thankful to you and also to God for putting us in your hearts. This Christmas gift um, will go towards finding solutions here in this 150-year-old church building uh, to heat this place, new heating solutions that will help us to serve our parish and our wider community um, this winter, including local residents, students, asylum seekers, and those in need of a safe, warm 
place to belong. Throughout 2022, this building has been used by various groups. One of those groups is a women's collective that serve women and children in the asylum system, uh, supporting them, uh, cultivating community, teaching and resourcing. Downstairs, even as I speak, there's a Sudanese men's friendship group that are watching the World Cup, cooking falafel, playing table tennis, and they meet here every week as well cultivating connection and community among themselves. As a church, we're learning from these groups and we've got a growing sense, a growing vision that the way of Jesus means uh, working with our neighbours and not just for them, which means fostering genuine relationships, collaborating together on initiatives and creating a sense of harmony in our diversity that we can draw from the richness of one another and work for the peace and common good. We hope that this building is not only a gathering place for our church services and our church community, but it is indeed becoming, hopefully, a community hub, a place where all people uh, living in this parish, in this part of the city, can feel like they can use and call home, where they feel like they belong, where they matter. In 2023, we've got two specific initiatives that are beginning to continue uh, this work, and my friends Stephanie and Ruth will tell you about those now. Hi, I wanted to tell you about our new initiative starting in January, The Long Table. We all know that when people gather over food and spend time together, something sacred happens. We are wanting to do something to respond to the current cost of living crisis we find ourselves in. So every Friday night, we are going to open the building, create a warm, welcoming space and offer a free, nutritious meal. Our hope is that the refugees and asylum seekers who already use our building every week will come. We want to welcome the students who are next door to our building and the community who socialise on this street every weekend. We want to create a space that is warm and welcoming and where connections can happen. Thank you so much for supporting us and we look forward to telling you the stories of all that we believe the Lord is going to do with this simple act of kindness. In early 2023, we are launching a parent and toddler group called Stay and Play. Our location in the centre of Belfast really just gifts us this incredible parish with local people, asylum seekers, students, people of, people of all different nationalities and a real diversity of culture right on our doorstep. And we want Stay and Play on a Friday morning to be a place of safety and refuge and welcome for anyone who wishes it. We hope to form a wonderful community that will support parents as they raise their children. And we just want to say a massive, massive thank you to you for your generosity to help us achieve this mission of forming this new initiative that we would be a place of welcome for all. Thank you. Thank you so much again for your generosity and your prayers and your support. We really love what you're doing there in South Bend and we love your heart to bring the hope of Jesus to your city and not only your city but to cities and places all across the world including here in Belfast. It's an honour to call you a partner church, it's an honour to call you our friends and we just pray that you will experience the peace of Christ this Christmas and in the 2023 that you will know the leading of the Spirit into all that God would have for you there in South Bend. So from your friends here in Belfast, thank you and have a merry, merry Christmas. Yeah, I think you can see uh, why we like learning from Redeemer, especially as we think about uh, sharing space with community. Uh, another story that we heard uh, from Dave when we were together last month uh, involved uh, back during the season of Ramadan when many of those asylum seekers who have been displaced are uh, happen to be Muslim and there was no place for them to have the evening meal where they break their fast uh, because of the way they're being housed uh, there in Belfast while they work the asylum process. So they were able to open up their church every night for that break, uh, breaking of the fast meal. And then members of the Redeemer community were able to actually join uh, those asylum seekers for one of those meals. And we just 
heard in that, like a real resonance with the ways that we would want to show up for our neighbors and use space. So our Christmas offering gift is going to go, a third of it, uh, everything that we give is going to go to Redeemer and kind of co-invest along with them in uh, making sure that they have space uh, throughout the winter for all those ways that they're showing up for their neighbors. So that's, that's the story there. Uh, you've heard about community and city and now world. If you want to give to the Christmas offering, just head online and choose Christmas 2022. Uh, you can also just write a check if you want to leave a check in the uh, donation boxes by the door. Just make sure that you write Christmas on the memo line, and that'll make sure that we dedicate all of those funds to the Christmas offering objectives. Cool. Let's talk about schedule. A couple of reminders. Did you know that... Oh, I should do this. Thank you so much, Carrie. Nice. Uh, let's do a quick update on how we're doing on Christmas offering. So our total goal is 50000 uh, 14000 has been given so far. It tends to be the case that Christmas offering kind of spikes toward the end of the month as we get to the end of the year here. Uh, 11 individuals and families have been a part of that so far, and we certainly invite uh, the rest of you to be a part of that if you'd like to. Thank you, Carrie. Now let's talk about schedule. Christmas Eve is happening this Saturday. Did you know that? Yes. Good. I was a little unaware of that until I walked in this morning. <laughs> And thought about the calendar. Yeah, Christmas Eve is right around the corner. Uh, we'll be here at 4 p.m. and 11 p.m. for candlelight gatherings. It's the same gathering at either time. The only difference is the 4 p.m. has nursery and the 11 p.m. does not. Uh, we would be honored to share that moment with you, with your loved ones, with friends and neighbors as we welcome God who comes to us in Christ this Christmas. It'll be a really special time. Then the following day, Christmas Day, the 25th, there are no gatherings here. Uh, just wear your jammies, stay home, do whatever you do on Christmas Day, but do not come to Studebaker 112. Again, on January 1st, a week later, the next Sunday, we're also not gathering here at 112. All right, I just wanted to jump in here quick to let you know what this means for the podcast. So Christmas Day and New Year's Day, we're not meeting in person, as you just heard Jason say. That also means that there will be no podcast, so don't look for it. It won't be there. We hope that you enjoy the holidays with your family, with your friends, your loved ones, or you get some much-needed alone time if that's what you need as well. All right. Next, Jason talked about our January 8th pop-up brunches. We're holding those all over the region. So if you are in the South Bend area and want to sign up for an in-person brunch, go ahead and jump down into the show notes below to sign up to join an in-person brunch. Or if you're one of our long-distance community members, we actually have an opportunity for a Zoom group, a virtual pop-up brunch table. There's a limited amount of spaces, so go ahead and jump to that same link, scroll down to the bottom, and you'll see the Zoom option. All right, enough from me. Let's get back to Jason as he introduces our speaker for this weekend as we enter into this last week of our Advent series. That's the, uh, the life of our church in the next few weeks. Uh, that being said, I'm, I'm really uh, thankful that I get to introduce to you somebody who's not entirely a new face to South and City Church, but our preacher this morning uh, is a dear friend and a beloved member of our community. Uh, Daniel Benura is uh, here doing a PhD at Notre Dame in theology. Uh, he's somebody that I love to learn from and somebody who challenges me uh, both with really good theology and with life experience that he'll tell you more about while he's up here. Uh, we've been working through the creed for months now, the Apostles' Creed. And during the Advent season, we've been hanging out with those lines that talk of uh, Jesus Christ conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And we've just tried to let that experience speak to us and shape us and challenge us. Uh, last week, uh, we heard from Mallory Wyckoff, a really profound reflection on Mary's experience. If you missed it, make sure that you go to the podcast and check that out. And then today, Daniel's going to speak to us further, uh, specifically from uh, a kind of hymn or a song that Mary sings that's known as the Magnificat. And so what's going to happen is uh, Daniel's wife, Shannon, actually is going to uh, offer the reading for us, and then Daniel's going to preach to us. Uh, will you go ahead and welcome both of them as Shannon comes up? The reading for today is from Luke 1, 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Indeed, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has come to the aid of his child Israel in remembrance of his mercy, 
according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. All right. Good morning, church. I, I know it is freezing outside, so I commend you for coming. I know uh, those who came at 9 a.m. Um, made it despite the World Cup final. So I got a number of you maybe watched the final and made it here. So thanks for coming. It's such a joy for me to be with you and share some of my thoughts uh, on the Magnificat. Just before I begin a bit about myself, my name is Daniel. I'm a PhD student in theology at Notre Dame. I also happen to be from the little town of Bethlehem. And, and when Jason asked me to preach on, on Christmas or during Advent, I'm like, why, why would you choose me, who happens to be, to be from Bethlehem, to preach on Advent on Christmas? And then I realized, I think in Jason's mind, I'm like the Christmas expert for this church <laughs> because I am from Bethlehem. So I've, I've got here some of my wisdom to instill here um, on Christmas for you. Um, it's a, it's a joy for me to be here and to reflect on the Magnificat. By the way, if, it depends where you come from, what your background is like. The Magnificat is an important hymn in the tradition. There are wonderful songs and hymns are written and sung based on, on, this, on, this, uh, on this prayer by, or this hymn by Mary. But if you come more from a, an evangelical background, it's not really a hymn that we pay attention to. We kind of focus on the spiritual aspect of the birth of Christ and what it means and salvation. And kind of there, there's this kind of spiritual aspect that we see in Christmas. And I think maybe, and i just reflecting on it, and, I'm, and I think that some of us, we tend to ignore this song, this hymn, I think because of a radical understanding of the world and of history and of faith that I think many of us in the church today miss. Uh, so that's going to be the crux of what I'm going to be sharing, kind of this radical, I think, a radical song that we have uh, from Mary. And I think also, as, as many of us who might be Protestant and come from a Protestant background, we kind of relegate Mary to the background. She's not really significant, I think, in a lot of our imagination in the work and ministry of, of Christ. But I think there's something, I think, wonderful here as I was getting ready for the sermon. Um, Mary was actually a very radical woman. She was a peasant. She was a poor, insignificant woman. But there's something radical that happened to her life that created this theology that I think is very radical. Um, She's a prophetess in many ways. She's a theologian. But I think she's also a huge challenge to us uh, today in our society. And we're going to see this in the hymn. So just to give you a context of the Magnificat, if you don't know the context, this is we find this in Luke 1, like we read in the verses. And this comes right after the Annunciation, after the angel comes down, speaks with, angel, with Mary, and pronounces... God's favor on her, that through her, the Messiah, the Christ is going to be born. And then after that annunciation, she goes and visits her cousin, Elizabeth, who happened to be pregnant with a boy who's going to become John the Baptist. And in that meeting, there is this kind of encounter, I uh, think, between the two women that is so beautiful and so profound, and, and that there is that there's a, like, unstabilizing uh, narrative we see in the text that it centers these women who are really mostly ignored in society, but through that encounter of these two simple women, we see this profound experience of faith, and that's what led Mary to sing or to say this hymn or this prayer. So that's going to be our focus thing today about this hymn reflecting on Mary's experience of faith and God and history, especially now as, uh, you're, as we are now finishing our Advent season and looking forward to Christmas, and I don't know how you think about Christmas as someone from Bethlehem myself. I have so many problems with how we do Christmas and the whole busyness and consumerism and gift buying and this kind of contract we have where you have to buy and receive at the same time. And this kind of this busyness that we have in Christmas here. But I think Mary, I think, calls us here to this radical... Um, view of Christmas, of the birth of Christ, that I think challenges us all in this busy uh, season. And here, her hymn, and we talked about the creed in the last few months, and we still continue, I think we're going to continue working with the creed. But then her hymn, if you read the hymn um, by itself, it could sound like a mechanical kind of narration or some kind of theology. 
But I think something so beautiful about the creed and about doctrine, and I think this is helpful for us as we reflect on the creed moving forward, the Apostles' Creed, that her testimony and her theology is based on a personal experience of God's work in her life, and that personal experience leads to this declaration of faith and theology. And so it is not that a dead and old creed that we have to work with and we have to memorize, but her experience of faith is actually born out of this radical understanding of God's love and God's care for the least of, here, of, 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 the least of these, including that peasant woman, um, Mary. And we're going to look at the text right now, but there's a beautiful kind of view we see therein where there's a crucifix that is formed. There's this uh, vertical axis where she reflects on God's dealing with the world and with history. And there is that horizontal axis of history and how humanity moves within that history. And she kind of stands there at the middle of that crucifix, kind of opening a way for us to think in a new way about the world, about history, and about God's presence in the world. She opens kind of the floodgates, I think, on that connection between heaven and between earth, between eternity and between limited space and time between God and humanity. And I think for me, this is what the incarnation is. This is the whole incredible drama of God being with us, opening that gate for us to receive God's love in our midst. And this is perhaps an invitation for us to reflect and think for, for many, in many ways, Christmas is a difficult time for us to sit down and be quiet and reflect. And I think through this hymn, as we're gonna see, I think it's an invitation for each one of us to slow down to reflect on our journey, on our faith, and what does it mean to be people of faith? What does it mean for us to experience God's mercy and love through the incarnation, through the birth of Christ? And I invite you, um, as you get ready for Christmas, to allow yourself to reflect like Mary does, reflect on God's mercy and God's goodness to you in this season. So this is what I'm, what's going to happen now. I'm going to work through the two segments I'm discovering in the hymn. We're going to see the text in a bit. Uh, reflect on how this hymn reflects her personal experience, Mary's encounter with God, and then also there's a, a kind of like a fascinating, shocking uh, also analysis of history and culture and society that Mary does uh, at the second part of the hymn. So let's do this. So looking now at the first uh, few verses of the, the hymn, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Oh, by the way, the word magnificat is basically the Latin translation of the Greek New Testament of that verb magnifies. It means magnificat, magnificat, or we say magnificat right now. So she begins the hymn, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Indeed, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And here through this, this segment where Mary positions herself in the middle as someone who has received and experienced God's um, grace for her, we get a glimpse of her heart. We get a glimpse, a glimpse of Mary's theology, how he, she thinks of herself um, in relation to God. She's answering the question, who am I? What is happening right now in my life? What is going on with me as a woman, as a poor person who's now suddenly acknowledged by the divine? What is going on in me, inside of me, inside of my body, and what's happening around me? And then, rather than focusing on herself, she goes beyond what is the center, the personal, the selfish, and she expands her reflection. And it becomes a reflection of faith that is not just about her own personal experience, but then, by definition, connects her to the rest of God's people. And by doing so, she's connecting herself to all of history from beginning until the end. In that experience, in, that, in her essence, she meets God. And God, who is her partner, who cares so much about her. And God is not here an inanimate idol. It's not just a mysterious force that is beyond and behind and above. It's not a philosophical necessity that we have to invent to make sense of the world. It's not a crutch of faith because 
because we're afraid and we're scared and therefore we have God. It's not a God of the gaps that we put in the holes that we can't fill. For Mary, and hopefully this is also for us as a church, God is a living, personal, intimate God. He's a God of history. This is a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a God who loves humanity and is fundamentally a God who loves the least of these. It's a God who enters the world because he loves the world so much, and he enters history, and God shares history, and, his, and history becomes the story of God, of the divine, and us together. Fundamentally, this God that Mary experiences is a God of love. This is the God we all hopefully profess to acknowledge and this reflection on God's work in her life led Mary to rejoice. And I, and I think there's something so profound. And I don't know how much, if we can get this as a body of Christ today in this world, where it is very hard for us sometimes to rejoice. And I, and I think if we put ourselves in Mary's place, as we don't know much about her, uh, for her upbringing, upbringing, but we know from the society that she lived in, she, as a young teenager, was not really acknowledged. It's not a society that centered Mary. Her opinions, her faith, her attitudes did not really matter to that society. But she experienced something so radical and so profound that her only response to that is to rejoice, is to be glad. And I think many times we miss that, and I think there's something about our society, the business of the world, the concerns of the world that prohibit us from that experience, that profound, intimate experience of gladness, of rejoicing in, God's, in God's, uh, God's work in our life. And someone who probably had a rough time as, as a young teenager, we're able to see this. How about us? How can we be glad in our acknowledgement of God's work and God's favor in our life? And she understood this as an act of mercy. She does this in verse 50 and also in 55. She sees God's unfaithful, uh, faithful, relentless love and care for her and for her people. And this is also an invitation for us to join into that celebration of God's mercy for all of us individually and collectively. Now, this takes us to the second part of the hymn, and we can see it on the screen here. And this is where the radical, I think, the radical, beautiful theology of Mary comes through. And I think a lot of times we, we miss it. Um, like I said, we tend to spiritualize Christmas too much and ignore the social, political, economic commentary that I think is at the heart of the incarnation. And I think Mary reveals this to us in a very profound way. So we read this. Indeed, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. And now look at the contrast she's going to be making now. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has come to the aid of his child Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And so here in this analysis of history and of time and of society, Mary is able now to move from her personal heartfelt experience as a young woman into this large perspective to think about the collective. She moves from the personal concerns of a young woman to the public concern of society. She moves from her history, her life, her experience to the human history. And here she doesn't see herself as someone who's removed from society or removed from the people of God. She sees, she sees herself as part of those generations and, and generations who continuously experience God's love and God's mercy for, for them. And this is a dynamic understanding of history, a history that moves forward. So we're not just isolated people with our own personal walks, with our own personal intimate faith between us and God. Through Mary, I think she opens to us the possibility to see ourselves as part of a, a global movement, if you will, of faithfulness of God's work in history from the beginning until the end. And within that history, within that experience of time and space that is transcendent, I think, for Mary, she also reflects on the specifics of God's dealing with the world. 
And here, Mary reflects a very powerful and very rich tradition in the whole scriptures, especially we see this in the prophetic traditions in the Old Testament. And she kind of moves us in many ways. She, she's that connection we have between the Old Testament, between the prophetic traditions of the Old Testament and into this new reality we see through Christ. And she reflects a lot of what we see in the prophetic critique of society. And uh, we see this in the writings of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, of Micah, and this kind of call, call for us to stand at the crossroads in society to reflect and to speak truth to power. And she does this in a very remarkable way. For example, we can see in the example, like looking at Zephaniah in verse three, in chapter three of Zephaniah 12 and to 13, this is the voice of God speaking. And he says, but I will leave within you the meek and the humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. And this is such a profound statement, I think, and we see this continuously in the prophetic tradition, where the humble, where the meek are the witnesses of God in, in, in God's world. Um, those who are the rejects, uh, the, on the, uh, the sides of society, those who are ignored, those who are not, do not really matter to the ordering of things. For God, as we see the text here, they're actually the center of God's attention, and they're actually a critique and a reminder to society. And I wonder, and as I read these verses, I'm thinking, man, what is, what is the function? Like, why would God say here that I would leave within you the meek and the humble? And I think there's a a profound mystery here and a profound calling for us to be attuned to the suffering and to the least of these. And I think when we walk by and we see the homeless in our streets here in South Bend, when we see those who are marginalized, when we see those who are ostracized in society, I think in a very, in a very mysterious way, these are God's reminders for us to be a people that is broken, that are people that care about the world. And this is very challenging in the society that is focusing so much on affluence and on power and on mobility, but then there the poor continue to be the poor to shock us, right? to see there's something beyond what we think is ours. And that is what God, is, I think, is doing here in the prophetic tradition and in Mary. And so the, the poor and the, and the weak and the, and the hungry, they become the focus of God's work in the world. They have continued to be faithful. And there's something remarkable in this testimony of the weak who are faithful to God. And within that tradition of the weak and the humble, God enters the world. And God enters the world through the weak, through the hungry, through the humble. And, and Christ is born in the midst of those faithful, in the midst of the poor. Elizabeth, Mary, Zechariah, Joseph, Hannah the prophetess, Simon the elder, Mary is in the midst of those humble servants of faith, and through them Christ is born. These are the meek, these are the poor, and these are the hungry that God has chosen to do great things. This makes no sense, right? Why would God work with these, with these people? Especially in our society, it makes no, no sense to us today. Um, but I think there is that simplicity, there is that dependence on God, there is that simple faith that I think we miss today and the way we think about God and the way we think about the world. But the spirit of Mary was so attuned to the work of God in salvation history and the people of God, which leads her to wisdom. And this is wisdom that we miss so many times. She's, she has understanding to secrets that are, revealed, that are revealed to the least of these that are hidden from the wise and from the learned. Mary, be Mary belongs to the least of these. Her perspective is that of the poor, and that perspective leads her to claim liberation. How, how can we be like Mary today? How can we have that perspective of faith that is driven out of a sense of poverty and meekness? How can we be, how can we be like her? And this, this perspective, and we're going to see this in the contrast in a bit, shows this upside-down understanding of history, an, an upside-down upside kingdom that Mary also proclaims for us. 
It is also a call for us here to be involved in history because God is working through the poor and we're asked to be those who work alongside God in making history. God is disrupting the world through the poor. And this is so frustrating for us because we want to have that power, we want to have that influence, but then she's saying, no, actually, God is working through the poor. And that those people that we don't care about, actually, these are God's agents for, translation, for, for transformation in society. And God chooses the unlikely people to do unlikely things in the world. And so here she does in the next verses, in the verses we just read, she makes this beautiful, powerful, I think, contrast between the rich and the poor, between, uh, the, the, between the, 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 height, the, the mighty ones and the proud ones and the lowly ones, between the proud who are scattered and the humble that are established. And we see this happening in three different levels, and hopefully you can kind of follow with me here. We see her critique or observation on the religious establishment, and we see a critique of the political system, and we see a critique also of the socioeconomic system. And this is, I think, why the Magnificat is a bit uncomfortable because we would like to spiritualize things. We like to see Jesus uh, in the spiritual lens. We need to see Mary in the spiritual way. But I think there's something so grounding here that makes the incarnation so beautiful, makes Christmas so profound. So she says, in the first contrast, he has, God has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. And it's not really clear who she's thinking about when she thinks about the proud. We can think, who are these proud who are scattered? I think there is, we can think of Babel, the people who are so proud to build a city for themselves, but then God scatters them. There's also pride is shown a lot. We see this in the prophetic traditions in the Old Testament, that these are the religious establishment who thought they are God's chosen people, who thought they knew everything, who when they pray, they would, th would, they would pray, Thank you, God, I'm not like that sinner. And there is this critique that Mary makes, makes here towards those proud, the religious, perhaps, establishment. And she says that those who are proud will be scattered. And by contrast, the humble ones will be established. And so the humble are those who respond to God and those who create history with God. Humility for Mary is actually the engine of salvation history. It is not the proud who make history, it is actually the poor and the humble. The proud are scattered in the imagination of their hearts, um, so which, which is an interesting phrase. What does it mean that they are scattered in the imagination of their hearts? There's something about the heart of the proud that makes them think they can, can control things, but then God, in a way, frustrates their planning and they're scattered. Secondly, so there's this critique of the religious authority or the pride that we have in religion, but then there's a political critique she makes here, right? She, she says this, God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. So the contrast here is between those who are on their thrones, those who are powerful, and those who are lowly. One is brought down and one is lifted up. And, and what is this, right? Like, what is she talking about? Did this happen in history? Can we think of examples of this where the proud or the, where the powerful were brought down? I think there are many examples that could come to mind. But then what's interesting to me that when we read history, official history is not, is not written by those who are weak or, the low, or those who are lowly. History is actually written by and for the powerful. We do not consider the lowly when we think about the past. We consider the rich and the powerful when we think about the past. And so the lowly, those are the ones who are forgotten by history. And God is fundamentally, according to Mary, those are the ones who are going to be lifted up. God is fundamentally on the side of the lowly. God is on the side of the oppressed. God sees the oppressed. God is with the oppressed. And God is also between in the midst of the oppressed. So it goes from the political critique, from the religious critique, she goes to the political critique. And then she makes this kind of socioeconomic critique as well. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he sent the rich away empty. The contrast is between the rich and the power, and God is flipping tables again, right? He's flipping the world on its head. He sends, God sends the rich away empty, but he fills the poor with good things. And there's a lot that Christ has said about the rich, um, 
It's an interesting kind of commentary on the rich that we are not comfortable talking about because of the kind of society we have where the rich are actually the center of the story. But what we know that God, that Christ has actually made his choice very clear. He chose to be on the side of the poor, right? He chose to be on the side of the ostracized, the neglected, the prostitutes, the leper. The poor are God's choice. The poor are the concern of God's work in the world. This is what we have been learning through what is called liberation theology. This is what theologians from uh, Latin America, from the global south, from the Middle East, have been trying to tell us, and I think we are still resistant to this understanding that fundamentally God chooses the poor, that God takes sides, and that side that, Christ, that God takes is the side of those who are marginalized by society. And fundamentally, the text, the work of Christ is a work of liberation, fundamentally for those who are oppressed. So what does it mean for us, right? Like, if we are poor, if some of us here are poor, how does that impact the way you think about it, that God is actually on your side? If you're oppressed from different experiences, from your background, how, what does it mean for you to, that God is actually has made his choice to be with you? But also, many of us are not really poor, right? Like, most of us are middle-class Americans. So what does it mean that God chose the poor, that God makes his place among the poor, among the rejects in society. But what do we do with our wealth and our power and our privilege? What does it mean to be poor then? How do we live a life that is marked by that lifestyle of faith and of poverty? How does that impact the way we think about our money, about our resources? And I think there's something so profound in the Christmas story, in the whole story of incarnation, that challenges the structures of power in which our society has built itself. There's a, a revolutionary perspective that goes against conventional wisdom, goes against every way society has thought about itself. God has chosen to give us a different and alternative view of the world and of history. Mary offers us an alternative view of the military and political power of military domination, of economic exploitation that frees money and enslaves people. She gave us a different system against the systems of racism and violence that exist and that are mark our society. She offers us a way out of the way that the society, of society functions. But also, what's, I think what's beautiful for me as I go from this hymn and and then center my attention on Christ, uh, on the ministry and the life of Christ. And I see Mary in a very beautiful way. And I think Luke is doing this intentionally, that Luke in many ways see the, sees this continuity from Mary, from this hymn, to Christ himself. In many ways, Mary here is a precursor, is pre preparing the way for Christ himself. So, for example, we read this in Luke 4. Christ, when he begins his ministry, we probably know the scene, he goes to Nazareth, to the, to, the to the synagogue, and then he opens the scroll of Isaiah. You might know this passage here, the scene. And he says, he's quoting from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he closes the scroll and he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old, the Old Testament are necessarily connected to the work of liberation that Christ does. And this is not meant to be spiritualized. You can, we can spiritualize it, it's fine. But I think this is fundamentally a radical view of society and of the socioeconomical system that exists in society. And this is how Christ establishes and defines his ministry, that his ministry is fundamentally for the liberation of people. And then, and we went through the Beatitudes uh, previously last year in the church, and then we see this in Luke 6, in Luke's version of the Beatitudes. And there we see, then Christ looked up to his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And then he makes his critique. 
And he goes in, in verses 45 to, 50, to 25, 25 to 25, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. So here, like Jesus is echoing the same sentiment that we see in the hymn. And that's why for me, like, this Magnificat is actually an incredible statement of faith as it, as it defines also the ministry of Jesus. And so as, we, as I finish here and as all of us move into Christmas Day, we have a few days until then, how do we think of all of this, right? How, does, how can this Christmas be a bit different in the way we think about it, in the way we reflect on God's work in history through, through Christ and in our lives today? And here, as, uh, like I said, I am from Bethlehem, and, um, and there's, a, a, there's something that is, I think is powerful here in the story of the birth of Christ, where Christ was not born in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a city where the political and economic and religious uh, center was established. Christ was born in this little insignificant village called Bethlehem. And the Almighty God is now a crying child in a manger. The Savior isn't a king who ruled from Jerusalem. Rather, he was a peasant, a brown man from Bethlehem who looked a bit like me, and who also looks a bit like all of us here as well. And this for me, if you ask me, why am I Christian? What makes Christianity so distinct? Why, why is Christianity relevant to us? And I think this is what makes our faith, I think, so radical, so countercultural, that God chose to be in Bethlehem, to come out of Bethlehem. And this is a God who cares and who is with the people. And I think this is what our faith is all about, and I think this is what Christmas should be about. This leads us into this kingdom of God that Christ has established here on earth. And we, all of us here, are invited to be those who are in that kingdom, who bring about a new reality of life that is so countercultural, that is so upside down, that we have to be distinct from how society functions. And I think, and I, think I mourn for this as someone who migrated here to, to the U.S., um, and I feel many times that the church looks very indistinguishable from society. And there's that radical, radical divine voice that is calling us to be a bit different, to imagine a new, a new history, to develop and create a different history that looks unique and, and in a way antithetical to the way society has functioned. Also, someone from Bethlehem, 2,000 years later from that birth, um, I'm also reminded that Christ was born and lived under a brutal military occupation, the Roman occupation. And today, my people, my family, the Church of God in his land still continues to live under a brutal occupation, a system that has been recognized as a system of apartheid. But it's also a system of oppression and violence that is actually supported by us that it is our government here that supports the oppression of God's people in God's land, that it is our tax money, tax dollars that support the system, the trauma, the oppression of my people, of the, the church of God in his land. And there's something I think that is very profound for me as someone from Bethlehem, and hopefully I can extend this to you, to reflect also on how our life, our faith, our theology, has, and our politics has normalized oppression and violence in the Middle East, and especially in Palestine. But also there's something to be said also about our society here, and, like, um, and Mary makes, makes this very hard for us, and I think many of us are unwilling to deal with also this critique that we have to society. A few years ago, when, when the church was transitioning with COVID and trying to figure out what this church could look like, Pastor Jason made this comment that it stayed with me is that whenever it comes to the church's decisions, uh, when it comes to COVID, the church's concern is how we function in terms of those who are, suffer in the church, the elderly, the poor, the sick, and they were centered in how the church made its regulations or policies towards COVID. And this for me um, is an approximation of what the church should be, or what the kingdom of God should be, that centers itself around the weak and the sick and the poor. 
But I'm also aware how this, this hymn is also a direct way into how our society functions, where we do not center the poor and the weak and the sick, uh, where the rich are propped up, where the poor and the homeless are, are still in the streets, um, where we have a military-industrial complex, where money and power is given to weapons and bullets, instead of to providing health care or support for the weak and the least of these. And we are still unwilling to reckon with our history as a society. And so we are called as a church to be radically different than the world, to experience history through the lens of faith, an understanding of faith where God works alongside the poor, and we are called to be the poor as well. We're called to be those who reflect God's indwelling in humanity, where we center the poor and the weak in our society. Mary was a radical woman. Mary was a revolutionary, I think. And rather than spiritualizing Mary and spiritualizing Jesus, and speaking of Christmas, we many times see Jesus as a Santa Claus who gives us that ticket to heaven. And I think Jesus demands more of us. I think Mary demands more of us. Um, and, we, and so may we respond to the call by Mary. May we be faithful to, the, to God's calling for us in society. May we, may we have that perspective of history and of the world that is actually attuned to the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of God in the world. And Mary takes us from the memory of history and a prophecy of the future of what the kingdom of God looks like. And then we are, we are asked to be responsible for today. How do we as a church act? And how do we live out the incarnation of Christ? How do we live Christmas in a way that incarnates God's love and mercy for the least of these? That's the challenge I think we have from Mary today. This is a challenge I think we have from the gospel. And may we be faithful in responding appropriately. If you are able, can you stand? <clears throat> let, me, let me lead us um, in the benediction. God, the uh, Father and the Creator, the giver of all good things, uh, the Son that reveals God's love to us, and the Spirit of God that dwells in our midst, may you find us faithful. May we respond well to the goodness and the mercy of God in Christmas. And may we have this radical view of society, of life, of history, that is centered on the weak and the least of these. And through that, may the kingdom of God come, be here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Grace and peace be with you.